Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful, these who have gathered out of love for you. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As I said in the welcome, I'm in the midst of a new sermon series entitled Singing the Blues in a Post-Soul World. And as we go through Lent, I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to go to um, Pandora or go to your playlist, whatever, wherever you do that, Apple Music or wherever, and, and put in um, the blues and see what comes up and listen to that music and let it fill your soul. I think it would be a rich spiritual Lenten devotion to do something like that. And I hope you will do that as we move through this important sermon series that draws us close to Jesus, draws us close to God, draws us to the Holy Spirit and prepares us for the cross of Calvary and the resurrection of Easter. Arthur C. Jones is a scholar and performer of African-American spirituals. He has written a book called Wade in the Water, The Wisdom of the Spirituals. He observes this. There are many people today who have virtually no understanding of what the spirituals are and why they are important. He goes on to say, um, the, legacies, the legacy of the spirituals is worth our continued attention. He, he quotes Miles Davis, the famous jazz artist, who said that most people think of the spirituals as a museum piece. But Jones goes on and says, you know, spirituals are not just for African Americans, but for people everywhere, anywhere who are concerned with issues of social justice, community bonding, deep spirituality, and most importantly, the healing of the deep wounds surrounding our shameful history of American slavery. Jones is speaking of the African-American spirituals, but the African-American spirituals were the precursors to the blues. I am, I am doing a rift for this sermon series on a book by Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, the senior pastor at Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, Illinois. He wrote a book called Blue Note Preaching in a Post-Soul World, Finding Hope in an Age of Despair. What is important to note about this is that this book comes out of a series of sermons and lectures that he did uh, and he brought them together in this book. Now, surely both these ideas, the African-American spiritual and the blues, the African-American blues, are linked to this season of Lent, a season that asks us to look deeply into our hearts and our world and face the despair that we are encountering and have been encountering for over a year now, I have had more than one person remind me that we are right at a year when we were told to close down our churches and close down our schools and close down our businesses and move away from each other and wear masks and keep social distance and, and wash our hands and wash our hands and wash our hands and, and use um, 
oh, what do you call it, the stuff, um, sanitizer, thank you. You know, uh, it's been a year, and I don't have to remind you that in this year, in the United States alone, we have lost over a half a million people to this disease, and we've lost jobs, and we've lost, we've lost uh, friendships, and we've lost opportunities, and we've, we've just lost. Maybe we feel lost. But I want to remind you that there are things that if we will face, if we will look deeply into our hearts, into our country, into our world, and look at the despair that we face, we have a chance for redemption and transformation. And that is what the African American spiritual and the blues is all about. In fact, that's what the psalmist sang. And in fact, that's what Jesus lived and preached and taught. The African American spiritual birthed by the songs of enslaved our enslaved siblings earlier in our country's history were the predecessor to the blues. And the blues in turn, a uniquely African American music and song genre, gave birth to jazz and hip hop. And as Arthur C. Jones stated, there is much for everyone to learn from looking at and studying and listening, listening to these forms of music. In fact, this music resonates with the journey of Jesus to the cross and to the resurrection. This movement tells the truth about how things are, how bad they are, what despair we are in and moves to the second movement of the gospel shout of God with us. Come, come now, and let's sync with this blues singing musical style. Reverend Dr. Moss points out that Jesus knows all about our troubles. We don't have to worry about that. And the God of the blues empowers women and men and refuses to categorize by puny, inadequate definitions of God created by us humans. And it is the role of the prophets and preachers, or shall we say, it is the role of the whole church to harness a portion of this divine energy. So let's take up the mantle, shall we? Let's be prophets in our own day. You know, I want to remind you that this passage of scripture that we heard Jonathan read this morning um, is preceded by an important passage. You know it well. It's the passage where Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And they have a lot of different responses. And finally, Peter says, you are the Messiah, the anointed one. Peter declares, you are the Messiah, the anointed one. And so it would appear that for once, Peter got it right. He didn't get much right in all of Scripture. In fact, he got almost everything wrong, but here he gets it right. But it doesn't last. And, and I wonder if that's like you and me. Sometimes we get it right. And other times... We just missed the mark. You know, Jesus, sensing that Peter might have something quite different in mind, 
for what a Messiah is, Jesus describes the true nature of Messiahship. And Peter's confounded and anxious and takes him aside and tells him what for. You see, in first century Palestine, a prevailing view was that the Messiah would come and lead a military triumph. And Peter may well have been thinking as much, but at any rate, he has no stomach for the notion that the Messiah would be disgraced by suffering and death. I want to remind you that the cross at this period in history was an execution tool, a bitter, violent, awful state tool of, educa- of, of execution. It was a horrible way to die. And so when Jesus makes reference to this and his suffering, Peter can't stomach it. Jesus, you see, understands his Messiahship in terms of those outlined by the prophet Isaiah who spoke about a suffering servant, a mysterious figure who would deliver God's people not with swords and chariots, but rather through his own affliction and suffering on behalf of others, through the pouring out of himself. And it is here where Jesus sings the blues, drawing the strongest possible contrast between Peter's ideas of messiahship and his own, identifying the former, Peter's, with Satan's temptation and a stark opposition to divine things. And it's almost as if Jesus has this real frustration with his disciples, and so he needs some other witnesses. So he calls the crowd together and speaks to them of his mission. And he says, anyone who wants to follow him will have to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus sings the blues for us right there. Jesus speaks the truth, the ugly truth to those who will listen. This is the first musical movement of the blues, the song of sorrow. The prophet Billy Holiday sings a song based on a poem by Lewis Allen. She sings, Southern trees bear strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Jesus, no less in his vision of his future, sensed that he too would hang from a tree. This is the truth he spoke to those disciples and to the crowd. Of course, the truth Jesus spoke was not just about him, but it was about us and is perhaps why Peter pushed back so much, so hard. Here, Jesus says it. Jesus says it, laying out a path for those who would follow him. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. The implication here is that for Jesus, Peter's view of Messiahship amounts to a form of self-centered grasping. Whereas Jesus has come for the opposite reason. 
has come to live for God and neighbor in love, to give and to not grasp. So as we sing our own version of the blues, the sorrows and the despairs of our lives, our country and our world right now, how do we do this right now, not in first century Palestine? How do we do it here, right here, right now? It is worth noting that Jesus does not say, seek out a cross and then follow me. He says, take up, take up your cross and follow me. It's a familiar call to the discipleship. It's repeated in one form or other in each of the Gospels. But the four accounts differ. According to Matthew, Jesus assures us that those who lose their life will find it. Luke says, we will keep it. And John says, we will keep it for eternal life. But Mark... In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus goes a step further. He's not a finder's keepers kind of guy. Mark's Jesus tells us, says it out loud for us. Our lives are not simply misplaced items needing to be retrieved nor are they things to be preserved, whether now or in the life to come. For Mark's Jesus, we are hopelessly lost without God. And when we lose our life for Christ, we will save it. We will be rescued from grave danger and harsh afflictions delivered from the very throes of death. It is a complete transformation of heart and mind and soul from fear to hope. Spirituality is not something we dabble in for personal enlightenment. Christians are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that relationship is a matter of life and death, right here, right now, but also in the world to come. Now, let's be clear. I want to be clear here. This is no invitation to prolonged, intensified suffering. That would violate Jesus' whole great teaching of the greatest commandment, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself, which implies a love of self. That's not what this is about. Jesus doesn't want, to wallow, want us to wallow in our sufferings. The assumptions here are that we already have suffering in our lives and that following Jesus may entail some sacrifice and suffering. But the invitation then is not to seek out a cross, but to take up what is before you, to seize the role as an advocate in the drama, and to follow Jesus along the way, a path that leads to health and liberation and restoration and new life. Our lesson then comes to this, the first musical movement of the blues, which speaks the truth, however ugly it is, to the second movement that takes up the gospel shout. And this, my friends, is the power of the blues paired with the power of the good news. Why are the cross and the empty tomb at the heart of the Christian faith? It's because in both, Jesus shows us what love and mercy and grace look like in human form. And it is because Jesus subversively transforms some of the worst thing in, things that could happen in the world 
the cross and the betrayal of loved ones and do some of the best things that can happen in the world effectively proclaiming that God will be with us in all things and will redeem us even in death it is because the cross declares God's compassion in solidarity with us with all those who suffer that we can find hope it is because to borrow a phrase from Mary Oliver's poem this story will break our hearts open never to close, close again to the rest of the world you see Jesus contends that the heart of that the heart of one conventional view of messiahship is a self-centered attempt to seize an advantage over others and Jesus will have none of that in Mark Jesus' path is a way of humility, healing, liberation, not grasping dominance and destruction. All of this is not easy. You and I both know none of this is easy, and it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, that's why we worship on Sundays. It's to remind us that we're not alone, that there are others who are on this journey with us who are not of the faint of heart. And when we're faint of heart, someone will lift us up Letting go of our illusions and opening up to new life is always challenging. Letting go of our self-centered lives into the lives of love and thereby recovering our true selves, the people God created us to be, is challenging. Giving instead of grasping, generosity instead of vengeance, always challenging. In short, living in covenant with God pushes us and accordingly, as we follow Jesus, this Lent and always we will feel deeply the blues of our living while at the same time we will feel the hope of our very being our very soul because when we save our lives we lose it when we lose our lives we save them Perhaps one of the most accurate, accessible, and familiar expressions of this blues song and gospel shout is the end of the famous prayer attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He didn't write it, we don't think, but it is in keeping with Francis's spirit, and so we attribute it to Francis. Let me not seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Not out there somewhere, but right here. We are born to eternal life, right here, right now, in this moment. Reverend Dr. Moss closes the first chapter of his book telling a story that is the best example, I think, of the blues song and the gospel shout. He tells the story of the time when Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago went through a very painful and challenging moment. He writes, My predecessor was unfairly lifted up and attacked in the media because there was a person who had been kissed by nature's son who was running for president. Moss goes on to tell how his church was surrounded every day by 
countless media representatives and how the church got death threats nearly a hundred every day. People sent threats, we're going to kill you, we are going to bomb your church. Moss explained how you want to keep your family away from all of that and keep them safe, but the stress of it all makes it difficult to sleep at night. And so one night, as he was half asleep, he heard some noise in the house, and his wife punched him and said, you go check it out. He writes, so I did, just like a good preacher, I grabbed my rod and staff to comfort me. I went walking through the house with my rod and staff that was made in Louisville with the name Slugger on it. As he went through the house, he heard the noise again and followed the noise up the stairs to his daughter's bedroom. When he looked in, there was his six-year-old daughter dancing in the darkness, just spinning around. And she said to him, Look at me, Daddy. He writes, I said, Michaela, you need to go to bed. It's 3 a.m. You need to go to bed. But she said, No, Daddy. Look at me. And she was spinning, barrettes going back and forth, pigtails going back and forth. I was getting huffy and puffy, he said, wanting her to go to bed. But then God spoke to me in that moment and said, Look at your daughter. She's dancing in the dark. The darkness is around her, but not in her. See, she's dancing in the dark. He concluded, with a gospel shout that we dance long enough, weeping, if we dance long enough, weeping may endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. And I want to tell you, it's our job. It's our job to take up the mantle. It's our job as every Christian to tell the world to dance in the dark. You see, the darkness is around us. But it is not in us. Sing the blues, but shout the gospel. Amen.